Hey everybody, <laughs> happy Valentine's Day. Uh, so great to have you with us. If you are new, uh, my name is Andrew. I'm the pastor here at Sanctuary Church. My name is Corey, married to this guy. Uh, and this is the first time that we have ever tried to team teach together. Um, as we've been talking about the last couple of weeks playing the long game, uh, we thought it would be fun on Valentine's Sunday to teach together on the subject of playing the long game in relationships. More specifically, what are uh, a few keys to relational endurance? Your most satisfying relationships are gonna be the ones that have uh, cultivated some semblance of endurance which means endurance is essential to having deeper and more fulfilling relationships of any kind. Healthy relationships are a test of endurance, not speed. You can't live a fulfilling life without fulfilling relationships, right? We are relational beings. So naturally, the quality of your life is connected to the quality of your relationships. And the same goes for our church, right? Our church can't remain healthy if our relationships are sick. Your most satisfying relationships will be the ones that you've endured, not the ones you ended because everything just became difficult. So we wanted to share four ideas with you, four keys of relational endurance. Though this is naturally applicable to marriage relationships, these keys are relevant to any relationship, romantic or not. We believe and we see in scripture the tremendous power and gift that it is to truly know another person and for them to truly know you. The depths of this intimate understanding is modeled for us in the covenant relationship that God establishes with Israel, that we see Jesus model in his relationship with the disciples, and that we see being worked out in the early church. We see time and time again how God chooses to use our relationship with others to deepen and strengthen our relationship with him. Whether a marriage relationship or often a deep friend relationship, God values community. He is community and uses it to bring honor to him. So now our church is built around the idea of practicing the way of Jesus together. We believe that to be an apprentice of Jesus is to order your life journey in four directions. Upward, learning to be with Jesus. Inward, becoming like Jesus. Outward, doing what Jesus did. And withward, doing it together. So Andrew and I, in talking through this message, wanted to use this framework, these four directions, as the scaffolding for today. So first, our first key uh, is simply look out for number one. And by that, I mean, like, put God first. Uh, and this ties in with the upward journey. Like, and here's how we articulate this. We believe that having a deep and connected relationship with God is the best possible way to live. We celebrate the divine in the daily, pursuing lives of hope and gratitude and worship. We believe worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of the conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose. All of this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. This is how we articulate the upward direction. So have you ever been with a friend who after spending an evening together, you get back in your car and you think, Wow, God, thank you for spending the evening with us. In the middle of food and slippers and conversation, God, like you were right there with us. Or on the contrary, with certain friends that after spending an evening together, you get back in your car and you think, wow, God, 
who was I in there? How do we get to those places of deep, enduring relational connection that are simultaneously with God and another? The first point that we want to talk about today is that in order to have enduring relationships, the primary relationship to nurture is actually the one we have with God. Like Jesus tells us in that familiar passage in Matthew 22:37, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And earlier in Matthew 6:33, when Jesus implores us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, there's an order. When the hierarchy of influence is out of order, others come before God, I'm gonna be robbed of greater depth and intimacy with God. When I think of this upward direction, I think of my best friend from college, Emily. She has a deep, connected, tethered relationship with God. When I talk to Emily about a problem, she isn't gonna tell me what to do out of a need to prove her importance in my life. Now she's gonna give me a passage in scripture or an attribute of God and encourage me to meditate on that. She's gonna hold my concern in prayer. She's gonna point me not to herself to solve this problem, but she's gonna usher me into the presence of God who will answer me and give me comfort. This is the sign of an enduring, healthy friendship, one in which God is the tether and God is honored and glorified. We see this in friendships and also in dating and marriage relationships. It's quite easy to feel like if my partner's relationship with God is strong, by osmosis, my relationship with God is strong. That somehow my partner's prayer life is my prayer life. Or for the wisdom that comes from walking with God to somehow punctuate my life if I haven't spent any time discerning his voice. No, this is something that is my responsibility to develop and mine alone. The relationship with my spouse is better, stronger, and more durable when I have put in the time to know and be known first by God. And it actually helps ensure that our relationship endures because I'm not depending on my spouse to be God for me. Yeah, that's good. This is relevant even in relationships with friends that aren't followers of Jesus. Like establishing rhythms that help you put God first in your life, help you uh, see and care and serve everyone in your life, right? We know that, uh, from the scriptures, God desires everyone, it says, to come to know him. Uh, second thing I would add uh, just to that is that a thing that my dad uh, always says, always said to me growing up that we've talked about, like preparing for marriage um, is a lot more about focusing on becoming the right uh, person, becoming the right person than being the right person. No. So then finding the right person. Finding the right, <laughs> hold on. <laughs> Such sage advice that I mess it up. <laughs> he would always say, becoming the right person is so much more important so much more important than finding the right person. Um, you know, every, that has everything to do, right, with prioritization of your connection with God. Uh, nine years now, almost 10 almost years ten. into marriage, I still find myself leaning on Corey in places uh, where I shouldn't, where she's not meant to, to hold me up, where I need to lean on God more. I can almost always draw a straight line between my unhealth uh, and our unhealth and our relationship with lack of time spent with God. Uh, towards the beginning of the pandemic, uh, Corey, I think you just kind of woke me up in the morning. You were up with the kids and you just looked at me and you're like, you need a day. You should go. <laughs> and 
I like to think it wasn't just because she wanted me out of the house. It was more like she was recognizing my desperate need to have some time to reconnect with God, which maybe it was an altruistic thing, but I think it was also a bit selfish. Possibly. Just a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> um, so, key number two. Key number two. Your relationships need a vision and a mission. This ties in with the outward journey, which is about doing what Jesus did. We believe that Jesus is God in human form and that the church is God's ongoing presence in the world. Led by the Spirit of God, we are passionate about relieving suffering and fighting injustice, joining the God of the oppressed in living out the transforming message of the resurrected Jesus. Jesus calls his church to be a compelling force for good in the world, and we believe that the church is at its best when it serves, sacrifices, and loves, caring about the things God cares about. We are created to live for something larger than ourselves. So uh, Antoine uh, de Saint-Exupéry, uh, is that right? Exubery. Um, he says, love does not consist of gazing at each other, but in looking outward together in the same direction. Playing the long game in relationships requires you to have some clarity on the mission. When you have a vision and you have a mission for your relational life, you're, uh, you'll, you'll find your ability to endure difficult seasons so much easier because you see it as part of the journey to where you are going. Your pain suddenly has a purpose to it. You know God can use it to get you to where he's calling you to. Proverbs 29, 18 famously says, where there is no vision, the people, the relationship will perish. A good friend of mine reminded me the other day of something that uh, he's actually said to me countless times over the years. I've been friends with this guy for a couple decades now. Um, and he reminded me that... Um, of this image that he always has of us being like 80-year-old guys outside of Seven Stars Bakery, reading the paper, talking about nothing and everything all at the same time, uh, keeping one another from becoming too salty. Uh, my friend is not just waxing poetic. Like, he, he means it. He has always had vision for the people who are closest to him and how they want to roll into the future. A vision for a relationship, however vague, uh, strengthens it. Even for those of you who are just dating uh, or, or trying to, I guess, in a pandemic right now. I have no idea how that's going. I'm just so sorry. Um, <laughs> when you're dating someone, if your larger mission in life doesn't have very much alignment with the other person's, it's going to be strained. It's going to be difficult. Or if you start dating someone with no intention and no vision of marrying that person, and by the way, I'm not talking about like by the third date, you should know if you're supposed to marry that person. But if there's not some intention of sorting that out, if you're dating just to date versus dating with the intent to marry, you can end up doing some real damage to them and to you. Let me say this. Casual dating, just like casual sex, is not great practice for fidelity. This is not how you train yourself to play the long game. Uh, in Stephen Covey's famous book, The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People, uh, he points out that individuals should create their own mission statement. And these mission statements, like any mission statement, needs to begin with the end in mind. It begins with the question, where do you want to be in the next year, 
in the next 10, in the next 20, in the next 40, in the next 50. And throughout the Bible, there is this same invitation to keep the end in mind. It's everywhere. 2 Corinthians 4 says, We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Colossians 1 says, Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. It's this idea of being so heavenly-minded, so future-oriented, that you actually are earthly good. We know as followers of Jesus how the story ends, so we don't have to fear. We know what really matters and what will live on in God's good world. We know who's making all things new, and we know we've been invited into that work of renewing all things, of making disciples, of demonstrating and announcing the good news. There's this big overarching macro vision and mission that we as individuals and friends and family and marriages get to be a part of, right? As it says in that paragraph, we were meant to live for something greater, larger than ourselves. So to my married, specifically to my married and engaged friends, or those uh, who are uh, intentionally living together in community, I want to recommend getting specific about this. This is just one practice. Take time to craft a mission statement for your marriage or a mission statement for your community. You start with a purpose, asking questions like, what are your dreams? What principles and beliefs guide your marriage, guide your relationship, guide your community? What are you aiming at? What roles do, we, do you gravitate towards as individuals and as a community? If you have kids uh, or thinking of having children, like what values do you hope your marriage emulates to your kids? What are your unique personal strengths? What do you bring to the table? What do others, in light of that, what goals are you looking to accomplish? What has God put on your collective heart? Uh, what things are most important to you, like trust or honesty or romance or passion or communication? Crafting a mission statement helps you get specific. What are we aiming at? It's something you keep revisiting over and over. And we're actually going to put something together for this um, in the coming months. We're going to put together a workshop on crafting a mission statement for your marriage. So anyway, look out for that. Again, I close with this. When you have a vision and you have a mission for your relationships, you will be able to endure and even rejoice when things get hard, when suffering comes, because it will come. And you'll be able to, you will be able to see beyond the struggle because you know God can use that pain to produce perseverance and character and hope, like it says in Romans 5. Mm -hmm. I see this so clearly when it comes to how we parent. Um, we have a very clear set of values for our kids and our family. We know what we're trying to build together and our mission and our vision and goals. They're pretty lockstep. Um, but when it comes to some parenting challenges, like that can get hard. We have the same values, but we can express them in ways that come into conflict. Should we be leaning towards discipline or grace? Should we de-escalate or should we push through to reinforce an important lesson that we need our girls to understand? When we're in the middle of that conflict though, how we come back together and find our solution is by reminding ourselves that we're on the same team and we're looking in the same direction. We're working towards the same vision. And that helps us show some humility and forgiveness when we need to, and come back to a place of unity for the sake of our family and our parenting. Yeah, that's good. All right, key number three. I wanted to call this one just sit down. I didn't get it. <laughs> it's a Kendrick Lamar reference. 
Uh, this is about humility. Key number three, you got to carry humility in. And this ties in with the inward journey that we talk about at our church, uh, which is about becoming like Jesus. So let's read the inward paragraph together. We believe that God wants to bring about a new humanity by redeeming every part of us. We embrace the salvation that Jesus offers as the only hope for the healing of our relationships with God, each other, ourselves, and creation. We believe that all of life is spiritual and that all of our fears and failures and brokenness can be restored and made whole. We value the inner journey because we want to be fully integrated people, mind, body, and soul. Emotions and experiences, all of it offered together to God. This leads us to follow Jesus in the way that he invested in the relationships around him. So sitting down or embracing humility, it's all about acknowledging our sin and turning away from it. It's what the scriptures call repentance. This is the only way into the Christian faith, and it's also a critical part of cultivating endurance in our relationships. It's funny how much we resist confession and repentance when we know how critical it is to authenticity. It's being honest with ourselves, being honest with God, and honest in the relationships that we want to go the distance. It says in Psalms 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Now, the entirety of the entirety of the background of this psalm is a sermon for Andrew to preach another time. But needless to say, the writer David had made some pretty big mistakes. He goes on, Create in me a clean heart, God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. We read here that when we ask God to create in us a clean heart, when we bring our sin and waywardness to God, he restores joy, the joy of having complete security and rest and communion with God. And I think similarly, we experience joy in the presence of another person with whom we've shared our brokenness and burdens. There's something incredibly powerful about not feeling the need to hide. When we're honest with ourselves, honest with God, and honest with others, the fear and the shame can be replaced with healing and rest. Have you ever tried to maintain a relationship, either with God or with another person, when we don't have that posture? When we've buried our sin or shame so deep that we're convinced we can hide it? In addition to the already terrible consequence of stealing intimacy, it's also a complete thief of joy. When I know I have something rather unglamorous that I should probably talk to Andrew about. That's the most gory way to put that. <laughs> I can't hide it. <laughs> That's true. Um, so he'll like laugh and joke and dance with the girls in the kitchen. And no matter how much I try to hide it, there is no joy in me because I'm holding on to something. I'm convinced that I can fix my issue on my own instead of exposing it to Andrew and with the confidence that he's going to shoulder that burden or brokenness with me. As followers of Jesus, we are called to be honest. God wants us to be honest about our condition, our hurts, our brokenness, to humble ourselves before him and before others. In Romans 3.23, it says that we all have sinned and we all fall short. It takes humility to expose what's broken in my life to my partner, but the strength of our relationship depends on it. Yeah. 
Yeah, at the end of the day, God can't or won't heal who you pretend to be. He can only heal who you really are. Humility basically says, it's not you, it's me. Humility asks, like, what am I bringing into the relationship? I, I love that, Corey. Like, humility makes me think uh, of this passage in Ephesians that I love to preach on. I think I bring it up most weddings that I do. Um, Paul is outlining what godly relationships of all kinds look like. And then he uses this phrase, which is definitely out of vogue in our moment, which is submission. And he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So when Corey and I do premarital counseling, we love talking about the importance of mutual submission. And we use this idea of racing to the bottom, racing to the bottom, like outdoing one another in service, competing in laying down your life. Uh, When people are truly, truly living in what's called mutual submission, you end up losing track of things like who's in charge. You only ever talk about power and you only ever talk about control in a relationship when something central to the whole thing has actually fallen apart. There's something about losing yourself to another and them losing themselves in you at the same time that defies our ability to categorize. Healthy marriages um, and even some friendships, especially even in in intentional community, all have this sense of mutual abandon to each other. It's like all parties involved essentially jumped into the arms of the other. There is a sense of mutual abandon between them If one holds back, if one refrains, it just doesn't work. Uh, We see it in another passage in 1 Corinthians where it's written, uh, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. So the question naturally is, which is it? Is it his body? Is it hers? Who has the authority? Who's the leader here? And the answer, of course, is yes. So at the roots of this idea is just this humble posture that says, like, I'm putting you first, while the other says, no, 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 I'm putting putting you first. Um, So good, Coach. (laughs) So good. So key one, look out for number one, put God first. Key two, know the vision, know the mission for your relationship. Key three, sit down. And key four, stop cursing. This ties in with the withward journey, which is about following Jesus together. We are called to journey together as one body. We value the image of God in all people everywhere. We believe that we are created to live deeply with one another carrying each other's burdens, sharing our possessions, to pray for and confess our sins to each other, to suffer and celebrate together. It's in these honest, loving relationships that God transforms us and truth becomes a reality. The way of Jesus cannot be lived alone. I love this last line, or that first line. We value the image of God in all people, everywhere, right? Including your closest neighbor. Truly valuing the image of God in the other person is about seeing who God made them to be, treasuring them, and letting uh, them know that they are treasured and loved by God. It's not like my dad used to tell this story of his father who um, was one of these men who, who would say, well, I told my wife on our wedding day that I loved her, and I'll, uh, I'll let her know if anything, if anything changes. 
right? We actually have to communicate that treasure and communicate that love that we have. Uh, and one key way that we do that is we bless. So when we say stop cursing, we are not talking about profanity. We are talking about blessing. Blessing can radically shape the culture of a relationship. Um, it can keep you from becoming a tired, salty old couple or old friend group that only knows how to communicate disrespect and only knows how to communicate sarcasm and only talks in cynicism. I may start standing during this one because I get very fired up about this. Um, a few quick things about blessing. Jesus tells us uh, to bless those who curse you, to pray for those who mistreat you. Uh, it says in the Psalms, let them curse but you, like let those people curse. You, you bless. Bless and do not curse. The word blessing comes from this Hebrew word barak uh, in the New Testament. Uh, it's, the, it's the word where we get the idea of eulogy. Eulogy means to speak well and large of, right? When people give eulogies at funerals, they are speaking well and specifically of the deceased. It has this sense of speaking the intention or favor of God on someone. It's like saying, may God's full expectation for you be fulfilled in your life. And we know, right, God's intentions for us are good. Dallas Willard puts it simply, he puts it like this. Blessing is the projection of good into the life of another. I am convinced, we are convinced, relational endurance requires this. An environment where good is projected over each other, right? This is critical. The Bible begins with blessing, right? To be human is to be oriented around blessing. This is why if you don't get this like as a child, and we see this in children who don't receive this good, don't receive these blessings, their development, right, is severely hindered. We don't want to be people who release dysfunction this is part of what really cursing is, is like releasing dysfunction into the culture of a relationship. John Ortberg writes this. He says, I used to think that cursing someone meant swearing at them or putting a hex on them. So it was pretty easy to avoid it because I did not swear much or do hexes. <laughs> but as I realized how wrong, I realized how wrong I had been. You can curse someone with, a, like, with an eyebrow. You can curse someone with a shrugged shoulder. I have seen a husband curse a wife by leaving just the tiniest delay before saying, of course I love you. The better you know someone, the more subtly and cruelly you can curse them. Blessing and cursing are simply two ways that we treat people. They are as inseparable as breathing in and breathing out. So how do we bless people really quickly? First, by our speech. James 3 says, with the, tongues, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings. We have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water? This should not be. Like, hear that. People are made in the image of God. Proverbs 12, 18 says, The word of the reckless, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. 
Have you ever been around somebody who lashes out with their words? Some people are gifted in this. They can say the one thing that just cuts you down. They just know what to say. And yet at the same time, the tongue can bring all sorts of healing. So, so today, is there anything that you've said to someone that you need to repent of with your spouse? Like you need to say like, oh, here's what I meant to say. Here's what I wanted that I'm sorry I said. Here's what this was meant, I was meant to communicate here. Are you proactively projecting the good into the life of somebody else, of the person closest to you? Would your wife or your friend say, like our friend John said, <laughs> there's this phrase our friend John said, it's like, it's like being with you. I wanna, he said, I wanna hear my wife say, being with you is like being underneath a waterfall of blessing. That phrase has stuck with us. Gets me ever done. <laughs> you can bless, right, by, by, by the words that you say and being aware of when you need to, to own the, the cursing that you've done. You can bless by noticing. So many of the gospel stories, the stories about Jesus, are simply just Jesus noticing people that other people overlooked. John 5, uh, we read, when he found him referring to a disabled man. Jesus is like always looking for and noticing people. So many stories involve that, that line or an idea around that line, like, oh, and then he found them. Do you notice people? Do you notice the people around you? Life is just a bunch of small details. You will create a culture of blessing or cursing depending on how well you truly notice the people around you. It's a story that uh, Bob Goff tells in uh, one of his books about uh, he was coming to a conference and he was asked, uh, or they had, they had a limo to pick him up that he was going to go speak at. And he was just surprised by this. He doesn't normally get picked up in a limo. So he climbs into the back of the limo. He begins to talk to the driver, asking him all sorts of questions. Um, just being, if you know anything about Bob Goff, just being Bob Goff. Just being this loving, caring man who's like aware of what's going on. He begins to pick up on what's going on in this person's story. And he just asks the, the driver, he just goes, hey, have you ever been in the back of one of these things? Right? You drive this limo all the time. He's like, you ever been in the back? And the guy's like, no, actually never. And so Bob asks, w would you pull over? And so the, the guy pulls over and after a little bit of convincing, um, he, he invites the guy to get in the back. Bob Goff takes the driver's hat, gets in the front, and drives the driver to the destination. Like he, just, he noticed him and created a moment just to pour out love and blessing. Do you see what your spouse or friend is doing in life, what they're excited about, what they're working on, what they're believing for? What wakes them up? Are you noticing them? Lastly, empowering people. Um, when, you, uh, when you begin to notice and when you are working on the, a culture of speaking life over somebody else, you will be, have opportunities to simply speak um, not just life, but like power into other people. I have a friend who just had his whole destiny changed like by a pastor seeing something in him, something that he didn't see in himself and calling it out of him, it was a gift. And this person has now like become a mentor of mine. Um, 
his person, just the unbelievable reach that he has, the gifting that he has came from someone in his life, a close relationship, someone noticing him, speaking life, and thus imparting um, power into his life that changed the trajectory of where he was going. That was so good. <laughs> I want to bless you. And I think that was so good, I have nothing to add. It was so good. Thank you. <laughs> Corey's working on creating a culture of blessing. <laughs> All right, so two last things as we close. Thanks for being, staying with us. Uh, one, long-term impact. These big things we're talking about, like having friendships and relationships and community and a marriage that go the distance, that endure. They all start with small daily acts of obedience. It's just that one degree, like that shift today, that resolve you might have today, that one thing that you feel like God's speaking to your heart right now, that you're like, I need to work on that, to get specific about that and lean into that. That one move, that one small act of obedience can in so many ways change the trajectory of your relationships. And, and secondly, Corey and I want to acknowledge that a talk like this right, can go one of two ways. For some, hopefully, um, there's some light that's been shed on things that matter. Oh, that finally makes sense, maybe, or like, I never thought about that, or I'll have to think more about that, or lean into that. But for others, honestly, I know this subject brings up all sorts of pain mm. and regret, relationship mistakes, like the way your heart's been broken maybe more than once, all the ways that we've maybe missed out on how things were meant to be. Maybe just going through these four keys has opened wounds for you that you thought were healed years ago. And in the last 10 years of our, almost 10 years of our marriage, um, we have, I'm, everyone said we would see it. And I was still surprised when we saw divorce and we saw like wreckage in friend groups and we saw betrayal and confusion and um, just some really hard, hard stories over the last decade. And so I, I, I share that and end there because we want to be honest about the thing that we all know, like life is, is messy. It's gut-wrenching. It's risky. Things don't always turn out well. Um, sometimes they don't turn out at all. Sometimes everything falls apart and we wonder if there's any point to any of it. And we're tempted to shut ourselves off, to build walls to callous our hearts and just to push ahead promising ourselves that we will never open ourselves up like that again. But we also honestly believe that in Jesus we can recover from anything. We have to believe that God can put anything, anyone back together. Yeah. We have to believe that the God Jesus invites us to trust is as good as he says he is. He is loving, he is forgiving, he is merciful, and he is full of grace. Yeah, amen. Would you pray with us? Lord, we thank you. Um, we thank you that in you, we find the foundation that we need for deep and robust and healthy relationships. Lord, we thank you that in you, um, we find vision in mission 
for a life of adventure, for the greatest um, mission of all, of seeking first your kingdom, joining you in the renewal of all things. Lord, we thank you that in you, uh, we can be vulnerable and honest about what's broken in us and receive forgiveness from you and carry that vulnerability into the relationships around us, just being humble in heart, Lord. And we thank you, God, that um, you, Lord, are the author of blessing. We find ourselves blessed by you, um, forgiven and free and called your children in spite of all we have done and continue to do. And we thank you that you empower us to, to cultivate a culture of blessing, Lord, in the relationships that we're in. And so we just, we give you, Lord, all the glory. We know that you, um, Lord, that you empower us, that you alone give us the strength that we need um, to, to endure, to persevere, and to live lives, Lord, just full of hope. So we pray all of this, Lord, in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit.